0: that killed john henry but it won't kill me but it won't kill me but it won't kill me John Hurt's Spike Driver Blues. John Hurt was one of the great stories of the folk revival, I guess. A kid named Tom Hoskins, who was a, you know, crate digger, record collector. He uh, was into Mississippi John Hurt, who had recorded some sides for the OK record label in 1928. Getting in on that early acoustic blues craze as The blues was sort of transitioning away from the classic blues singers, the female singers, Ida Cox, Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, people like that, and into more single guitar players accompanying themselves. Blind Lemon and Jefferson had uh, moved from playing on the streets of Johnson City, Tennessee to a recording contract with Paramount and uh, sort of redefined what people were thinking of as the blues. And Mississippi John Hurt was a unique and important voice in that uh, early acoustic blues thing. His style has been described as an upcountry or Piedmont style blues. It's very melodic bouncing. It's beautiful. I guess the two mainstream heroes of that tradition are John Hurt and Elizabeth Cotton, who also had a long gap in her, I guess I would say, musical employment resume, um, only be to be discovered by Pete Seeger, also during the folk revival. So John Hurt made these records for OK Records in the late 1920s, had some minor success, and when the boom was over he went bust with it and went back to working for the wpa doing factory work farming on shares whatever he could do to to get by in his hometown of avalon mississippi In one of his songs he calls out that avalon's his hometown so tom hoskins just decided he'd get in his car from dc and drive on down there and see if he could find him and he uh, asked around, he said, Hey, does uh, anyone know where Mississippi John Hurt lives? The person he talked to said, Well, you're in Mississippi, son, so that doesn't narrow it down a lot, but there's a guy named John Hurt who lives about three mailboxes up the hill. And uh, he came back and recorded again, and his voice had mellowed and sweetened. His guitar playing was just as light and beautiful as it was before, and he made a couple of really, really great records and went out on a high note. He he didn't. He died a few years after he started playing again. But uh, a whole generation of musicians were profoundly influenced by him and his emergence on the folk scene in the early 1960s. His take on the John Henry story is unique. It's interesting in the parts. Uh, Playing at the beginning of the podcast, he says, this hammer, this is the hammer that killed John Henry, but it won't kill me. Before that, he says, take this hammer and carry it to my captain. Tell him I'm gone. He's not inclined to uh, lay down his life for a job in the way the John Henry story repeats it. You know, uh, they made Disney over the years made these different american myths legends they made paul bunyan johnny appleseed and they were uh, you know spread out over over you know half a century but uh, in the late 90s early 2000s they they wanted to combine these and they recognized that despite there being a, a massive wealth of african american folklore they didn't have an african american myth or hero and they decided to do John Henry, not without some controversy. In the, in the Disney film, it's narrated by James Earl Jones. It seems very important. has some, you know, great music and stuff. But the shackles on John Henry's legs when he is enslaved are melted down and forged into a hammer. And they didn't seem to recognize that you didn't need to be some sort of crazy Marxist to understand that as a metaphor for changing in chattel slavery for wage slavery. You know, John Henry himself was a, a real historical person. And, uh, you know, he was arrested on, I guess, some minor crime. I mean, he was arrested for moving about. Because <laughs> after the Civil War, the newly freed slaves um, by a series of laws, often called the Black Codes, were prevented from moving about. People were worried about them. Of course, people were trying to reunite with their families, and they'd moved from rumor to rumor, searching for family members until they ultimately come upon them or don't. Toni Morrison's great novel Beloved is sort of, you know, loosely, or, I mean, one aspect of it is a, is about this. Paul D., one of the main characters, is searching for Setha, the other main character, um, and he's been searching the countryside for her. She's his only sort of connection to their old home and anything like family he's got, and he's been, um, you know, on the chain gang and brutalized and, and prevented from, you know, prevented from moving on his journey. The black codes were replaced in the 20th century by um, vagrancy laws. And they were applied to, to white folks too, occasionally. I mean, there's a, a great song that was recorded by a lot of people. It's kind of in the bluegrass repertoire. Um, called Blackjack County Change, that is about a predatory sheriff arresting somebody on vagrancy. Um, But it was mostly applied to black men who needed to have in hand a work contract in order to freely move about from one spot to the next. Really, I don't know that these have gone away. They were around legally in some places until the 1970s, and they've been replaced by other things like anti-gang affiliation laws and things like that that can be sort of arbitrarily wielded. But before the Great Migration and through it even in the 1920s, it was difficult for people to move about from one place to the next. And so you'd get Locked up in jail for being a vagrant, and then you would uh, work for free out of the jail in order to work off your crime of being a vagrant. Musicians, not incidentally, were um, were vulnerable to this because you know they didn't have a work contract. They'd be traveling from town to town. They'd often, um, you know, show up in a town and busk on the street, like Blind Lemon Jefferson. And pick up some cash to get to the next place or maybe pick up a gig or just sort of get by like that. And they were always on the lookout for, uh, you know, getting locked up on a vague or a vagrancy charge. And the blues lore, particularly of the, the early musicians, is filled with, uh, you know, with people getting arrested for vagrancy and spending time in jail. It was, a, it was an ordinary part of the black experience Um, for early blues musicians as well as for, you know, other folks. At any rate, the historical John Henry transitions from slavery to prison to wage slavery. And then John Henry, as a point of pride, then dies, exhausts himself trying to prove that he can beat a machine and you know I'm sentimental about the about the story and about versions of it and you know I love I love the idea of of a human defeating some technology that is against its humanity but Mississippi John Hurt knows a little bit about the exploitation of labor I guess and he wants to Recognize that it's not worth laying down your life for the man, for your job, because it's not going to pay you. It's better to live and carry on. He also understands, I would say profoundly, that a maybe underrepresented in uh, popular lore, but heavily present in African-American folklore is a rejection of the masculine, hyper-masculine, what Eldridge Cleaver calls in Soul on Ice, the hyper-masculine menial, Um, and the embrace of the intelligent, the intellectual, its brains, not brawn, that defines African-American folklore. In her great, uh, I would call it a novel, um, but it's presented as a study of folklore, Mules and Men. Zora Neale Hurston um, is pretty clear about this. She says that their stories are about, quote, how, um, sorry, how our noble hero, Jack or John, not John Henry, outsmarted the devil. And indeed, Uh, Intelligence, um, and particularly as expressed through facility with language, is the sort of defining virtue expressed in in Mules and Men. Um, And it's about all the stories about how John will trick old Massa or in other ways sort of uh, what she likes to call straighten the bet. The beginning of the book, some people are playing... Uh, a game called Florida Flip, a card game, and then the people are sitting on the sidelines, straightening the bet. She calls it, and that becomes a metaphor um, that she extends throughout the text, where people, if they don't like the conditions they're laboring under, they'll find ways to modify them um, using their intellect, rather than like John Henry, you know, in the in the John Henry. Story. It's not enough that he lays down his life to get more track built or tunnel dug, whichever, whichever version you like. Uh, in the end, in some versions, again, his wife, sweet Polly Ann, picks up that hammer and drives steel like a man. Uh, it doesn't seem worth it to me. There's a great series of paintings from from the early forties, 1941, I think. Um, called the Migration Series by Jacob Lawrence, who's a really interesting modern painter. And uh, in 2015, I'm going to say, the the MoMA put together an exhibit. The the 60 panels of the series are separated in separate collections, and they've only been exhibited together a, a few times. And they were brought together, and the MoMA did this wonderful new interpretation um, with song, history, and cultural contexts, it's a a model I I use for uh, for assignments for students all the time. Try to get them to think about culture as a sort of multifaceted, faceted, and integrated project. Anyway, there's a, one of the panels of the of the migration series. Um, you should check it out, by the way. It's all available online still, um, and it's a real service that that they've done. I think. Um, but anyway, the, the fourth panel shows a John Henry type figure and, uh, he's swinging a hammer at a spike. He's the spike driver. Interestingly though, he's not out on a track or in a tunnel. He's in a room. There's a narrow window, a wooden floor. It's a kind of interior space that, um. That Lawrence shows in other panels of the paintings where people are eating or reading or trying to uh, you know, live their lives in the industrialized uh, north after migration from the south. And in this image, the guy does not look like someone who's going to beat that old steam drill. He looks destroyed by his work. The MoMA's description reads... Um, The worker with spindly arms and protuberant torso struggles under the weight of the hammer. He offers a stark contrast to the sturdy, muscular men seen in the countless images generated by federal cultural programs that were part of the New Deal. He's more than just a rejection of that kind of hyper-masculinity, though. It's interesting, the spike is angled down and it appears to be driven directly through his foot. You don't need to. Uh, you don't need to go to a Christian church too many times to to know what that's all about. What's the sacrifice he's making? Well, I mean, first of all, in the image, his work has ruined his body as well as his mind, um, and it's penned him in place, where he's no freer than he was, wherever he came from in the South, presumably, given this uh, the context of this painting. And he sacrificed himself for something else. In the 1970s, an African-American epidemiologist and researcher studying the prevalence of hypertension and other sort of potentially stress-related diseases among black men coined the term John Henryism. And this is a quote. It's a strategy for coping with prolonged exposures to stresses such as social discrimination, by expending high levels of effort, which result in accumulating psychological costs, and it's been more broadly applied to um, you know other socioeconomically disadvantaged people, and we've seen that people are encouraged basically to work themselves to death in order to struggle out of poverty, or more specifically, to attempt to overturn racial stereotypes. So this brings me to a kind of conflict in my thinking. Uh, You know, I admire and like the John Henry uh, songs. (laughs) You know, are they just songs that perpetuate John Henryism in a negative way or not? Um, And I think the answer is that they don't. One of my favorite poets, and I've mentioned him on the podcast before, is Sterling Allen Brown. He was a Howard University professor, and he was a a mentor uh, to and teacher of Tony Morrison, among others. And uh, his poetry often sort of was explicit or made explicit something that was implicit in blues songs. And in a way, though I don't think he was writing for specifically or exclusively a white audience, he was, in a way, provides a translation of the kind of code shifting involved in these songs. And it points to something that you might discover in John Hurt's version of Spike Driver Blues, if you pay attention. In the last verse, he says, John Henry, he left his hammer, lay inside the road, lay inside the road, lay inside the road. John Henry, he left his hammer all over in red, all over in red. That's a really intriguing line, because uh, how did the hammer get all over in red if he worked himself to death, and this seems to point to what one scholar is calling the rebel versions of John Henry, which point to the possibility that black performers performed the song differently in public, and also that even when it was performed in the sort of quote-unquote normal way, that a black audience would have seen through the code and understood it in a different way than perhaps a white audience or an uninitiated audience. There's a great article online that mostly documents um, the prevalence of these Rebel versions. They all kind of hinge around one difference. In what uh, is being called the Common Version, John Henry said to the captain, A man ain't nothing but a man, but before I let the steam drill beat me, I'll die with this hammer in my hand. Which we all sort of know if we've ever heard the song. And in the Rebel versions, which again I think were probably performed for a black audience often, he says, a man ain't nothing but a man before I let you beat me down, I'll die with the hammer in my hand. Giving the possibility that John Henry opposed his captain. Kind of like in that Jimmy Reed song, Big Boss Man, don't you hear me when I call? You ain't so big, you just tall, that's all. Taller they are, the harder they fall, he's gonna knock them down. I like this version of the songs, and I like to think about that. I think about labor a lot, and I hope that when we come out of this pandemic, we don't have a mendicant or sycophantic relationship to um, work simply because we're gonna, many of us, be out of it and we're going to need it. Our labor is still valuable, and the rich people do not get richer without us working for them. Anyway, take care of yourselves. I hope you enjoyed this uh, discussion of John Henry. Folk music is something that I'm very close to. And I hope to talk more about it in the podcast. Got a lot to say on John Henry. I could do a whole series. So we're going to have to just call it a day here. But thank you. Be well. Take care of yourselves. Hang in there. I think hope is on the way with this vaccine. So be well and take care of each other until then. uh, See you next week, friends. Bye.